Genesis 38 is where we're going to be this morning. And just one more small caveat. Uh, I don't apologize for what Scripture says, uh, but I will, in a sense, give a warning as to what Scripture will say today. It will be a glorious, glorious thing. I've said some racy things uh, in the past, and this might top them all. So that being said, Genesis 38 is where we'll be. We're going into a series uh, entitled Extravagant Grace. And we'll Here's the reason why we're using the term extravagant grace and not just grace. Because we all, we all do need grace in our lives, right? Like today, we need to extend grace toward those Alabama fans who did not do the same to us any other season ever. But this year, this year, we need to extend a little extra grace toward them, keep coals on their head or whatever. Um <clears throat> extend grace toward them. Uh, we all need, we all need a little bit of grace in our life, but your, your need as a human who is fallen and has sin in your life isn't just for a little bit of grace. You need grace that goes above and beyond ways that you don't even know you don't know that you need grace in your life. You need extravagant grace because we are in desperate need of a grace greater than our need, greater than the need that we know. If you just examine your own heart at any point of any way that you have sinned against God, if you're new to church world, that you have not done what God has told you to do or have done something that God told you not to do or in any way, you just begin to dig down, you realize truly, honestly, just how messed up you are and how desperate you need a God who has a grace, a gift of giving you something you don't deserve that's more than the need that you have, not just so you can break even, but in Christian theology, that you thrive having the very life of Christ in your life because of the grace that God shows you in Jesus Christ. You desperately need an extravagant grace because we are all in desperate need of God's grace, whether we know it or not. In fact, the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 1, begins helping us see why Jesus came. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the New Testament, begin the New Testament not because chronologically they were written first or earliest, but because they start out helping us understand in the New Testament the story of how God would reveal his plan of extending his extravagant grace to all, and specifically extravagant grace in salvation to all who would believe in him. You know the book of John opens up with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God, and all things that were created through Him, uh, all things that were created were created through Him, for without Jesus, nothing that was made was made, and in Him is light, and this light is the life of men, the, life would shine in the light, light would shine in the darkness, the darkness would not be able to overcome it. That whole idea, Jesus came, and He became, and then in verse 14, He, and then He became flesh, the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And then he says this. And we have beheld his glory. Glories of the only begotten from the Father. Full of grace 
in truth. That when God revealed himself, incarnating, when the second member of the Trinity incarnated Jesus Christ, he is grace personified. He is grace to the world. And what he did through the gospel is just not show a better way of living, but offer life extravagantly to all who would believe in him. He said, I've not come so that you would have life, just so that you would have life, but you, you would have life in exceeding abundance, John 10, 10. The life that we're given in Christ goes way above and beyond the death that we deserve. The grace that we receive because of the gospel goes way above our desperate need, which is indeed desperate, not just to settle the score, but to put so much credit in our favor that we're not just considered better, we're considered righteous, having met above and beyond the standard before God himself. Y'all, we desperately need extravagant grace, and that's exactly what God gives us in the gospel. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 he wants his readers, Matthew wants his readers to understand the extravagant grace that comes through Jesus Christ. In fact, it says this. Oh, I'm not even in Matthew chapter 1. Let me go there. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 says this. It'll be on the screen. Well, this is the book. This is how Matthew starts his gospel so we would know about this grace that's come. This is the book of the genealogy. Okay, so this is how uh, uh, genealogy, or some of your translations say the record of the genealogy or the record of the birth. You know what a genealogy is. We all do, well, I haven't done ancestry, whatever, like giving my DNA to any computer company. That's weird. I already given my face on Facebook, you know, and what I'm going to look like in 10 years and what I look like 10 years ago. Like FBI's got me pinged if I ever do anything wrong, but it's another story. <clears throat> um, uh, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is how Jesus Christ came along. Jesus Christ, Jesus is a name. Christ is a title. Christ is a term that means Messiah, a Messiah in Jewish theology that Matthew's writing to in this context is the, the king, priest, savior. So Matthew wants them to know, okay, this is how the one that God promised, the Messiah, Jesus who would rule all things, reign over all things, be the king priest over everyone to represent God to the people and people of the God. This is how he came along. The son of David, kingly line, the son of Abraham, covenant line. This is how you will receive the very grace of God that he promised to you. And then he gives the genealogy. Verse 2, he says, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Now, this is where it gets tricky. Because as we be, even begin in the genealogy of Jesus, we find people who did not deserve anything from God. Literally, the story of Abraham in Genesis 12 is he's just kind of going along, and God said, you will be the one that I will expand so that the, you're, you're, so to make my people from. Then we have Isaac. That dude was sly. Continuing on, Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And before we even get far into the genealogy of Jesus, we need to understand something as we head into Christmas that Matthew, one of the reasons that he gives this genealogy, 
one of the reasons why Jesus' birth is so incredible is because the story of God's extravagant grace coming from God is wonderful, but coming through these people makes it even above and beyond. That God works his extravagant grace through people who are extremely undeserving. In fact, the five women in Jesus' genealogy that are mentioned and begins with Tamar, and then we're going to go through the next several weeks, ending all the way up with Mary, are some of the most unlooked for people you would not choose that if you could go back and represent and who represents you and what you're all about because of what they were about in their life. And here's what you need to know and what we're going to see from the story of Tamar today. You're going to see that your need of extravagant grace is, because of the definition of grace, not based on what you bring to the table. It is simply based on the idea that we have a faithful God who works through messed up families, who can work in your mess, and that God chooses to use you just like he chose this specific line through this specific genealogy in this specific family. And I don't know about you, but I need a God that can use messed up people, messed up families. Don't pretend like you don't have a messed up family. Y'all were just with them for Thanksgiving or avoided them for Thanksgiving, right? We need a God that can use messed up families. We need a God whose grace is greater than our perceived need because we are so messed up. Genesis 38, if you turn there, is a profound story of God using graceless people and bringing about his plan of salvation and grace to the world. And so instead of trying to walk through slowly and for the sake of time, I'm just going to read Genesis 38 out loud. I have the ESV, and so if your translation says something a little bit different, it's just because literally I read from the ESV because this is what this Bible is. I don't really have a preference of a translation. But this is going to be from the ESV, and so if your says of words that are a little bit different, they'll all say about the same thing. Unless you have the message or something weird like that. But in Genesis 38, here's the story of Tamar and Judah. I'm talking like, like Judah, like from the tribe of Judah. Like one of, the, one of the 12 sons that from which every people in heaven that uh, like we owe our being, knowing Jesus from the line of Judah. Like this is Judah. Okay. Here's the story of Judah and Tamar and how Jesus came about in, the, in his genealogy through these people. You ready for this? <laughs> I told you your kids need to leave. I'm just saying. You can tell it to them later, however you want. All right, here we go. Genesis 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezib when she bore him. 
And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. I heard y'all giggle. And when, when what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time... The wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend, Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Aniam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her on the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For she did not know, for he did not know that she was his daughter in law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet? And your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at Enium on the at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And Judah identified them and said, she's more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in the womb. And when she was in labor, one, hand put, out, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you've made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out uh, with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Some of y'all didn't even know that was in the Bible, did you? Right? Like, man, now I'm going to read the Bible more that, just to get gold nuggets like that. See, this is one of those passages I'm, I'm preparing for. Uh, a wedding, uh, not this coming weekend, but the next weekend. And surprisingly, the bride and groom did not say, hey, can you read the story of Tamar? 
and Judah, right? Every time I do a funeral, no one requests this passage, and I can't imagine why. Now, one of the reasons, honestly, is because is anyone else just like a little bit uncomfortable with what's going on in this story? Like, you ought to be. Did you hear what was just read about these people, what happened in this text, that are in Jesus's genealogy, the line through which the Messiah king priest would come into the world? What in the world do we do with this story? And of all of the lines that God could have chosen to bring about his salvation to the world, why in the world did he choose people like this? Well, this story is in here for a very specific reason. In fact, there's at least three reasons, because this is a sermon, so there's, there's three reasons we need to look at this morning as to what we need to know about this story, why God includes it in the Bible. First, this is a story of God's faithfulness, even though his people are being unfaithful. If you were to read the context around Genesis 38, and I invite you to do that in your life groups or at home as a part of devotion, you'll find out that this is a side story of, uh, uh, rather, this is the core story of an entire story that's going on around Judah and Tamar in the book of Genesis. In Genesis so far, God has made everything and he made it good. And then sin ruined everything and made everything bad. And then everyone got so bad, God had to flood the world and start over with Noah. But what did not get destroyed was Noah's intention to sin because he also had the result of Adam's fall in his own heart. So right after the world was flooded and the whole, you know, Noah and the, and the ark and all, Noah, right? It's not Moses. It's Noah and the ark. Someone paying attention? This, okay, cold medicine is making me weird. Like, is it Moses or Noah? Definitely Noah, okay? So, so Noah, the world gets flooded, <clears throat> you know, Noah called the animals two by two, or in some seven, but that doesn't rhyme in the, in the children's hymn, children's hymn. I'm just going to stop talking. Like, so, so Noah it, continues to sin, like literally gets off the boat, gets drunk. His son laughs at him. We'll talk about that another time. And so that has consequences. Sin continues to run rampant in the world, all the way up until it's so wicked that God divides everybody into language and culture so they can stop plotting with one another. They still plot, just separately now. And then in Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, I'm going to choose you, and I'm going to make a covenant with you and with the generations that come after you. And Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. And these 12 sons, in the middle of this Store, and the, uh, around the story of Judah and Tamar is the story of these 12 sons, specifically one named Joseph, who these 12 sons did not like because they were his fa their father's favorite. And so they take Joseph, and you've heard this story, and with his technicolor dream coat, and they sell him to the Ishmaelites who take him over to Egypt and sell him as a slave. And he rises and falls and rises and falls. And the person who decided to sell Joseph is none other than 
Judah. Like the brothers are sitting around, should we murder him? And Judah says, well, right, you know what we can do to make money? <laughs> we can sell him as a slave. And then they'll never know. Like even though his people, covenanted people, were acting faithless to him, God remained faithful in working through the story of Joseph so that he could bring God's people into Egypt to be protected and continue to multiply so he would keep his promise. This story is in here so that we would know God was doing this not because the people he chose were awesome, but because he is awesome. That God is faithful. But second, it's in here so that we can know that Jesus' family is messed up. Like, of all the people that God could have brought his Messiah through, this is the line he chose. Literally, could speak and make people. Like, that's what he did. Or make them out of dirt and breathe into them. Or like, how, I've never made a Like, however that works, nor, like, normally. I made one person. You get the point. Like, the, like the, the point is, like, he could do anything he wanted through any line he wanted. And this was the line he brought them through. Like, this Judah and Tamar. Judah, I mean, literally, just starting out, he, he marries a Canaanite, which is an, always a bad idea in the Old Testament always a bad idea he had wicked sons like the father goes to the sons you see what the father's all about we get his story we get the two sons who were wicked and they were so wicked they died the whole process of what we just read about with like go into your your brother's sister and make an, an heir like that whole that whole process even just promising the son, the third son. So he had three sons. The two older ones died because they were wicked. Said, wait for the third one. The third one came of age. Still didn't give him to Tamar. That whole thing was literally Judah condemning Tamar to a lifetime of loneliness, even though she deserved not to be lonely. I mean, this is Judah and Tamar. Can you imagine the, 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 the conversation Tamar would have with like, meeting new people, you know, like we've, we've all had this conversation about like, well, how did your parents meet? Oh, they met at work and, you know, hung out for a while or whatever. And well, how did your parents meet uh, Perez? Well, uh, you know, <clears throat> just um, my, right? <laughs> this is weird. Well, I, it's, it's kind of my, my, well, my grandpa's my dad. And um <laughs> My uncles, which are my brothers on my side, but my uncles on my mom's side, it's kind of weird. I don't know. I'm my own uncle in a way because eh, I'm the brother of my uncles and the son of my grandfather and the, da and the son of my mom. It's just weird. You know, can you imagine this conversation? Oh, well, how about your mom? How do they meet? Well, you kind of cheated her out, and so she dressed up and tricked her into having me. Um, but I'm glad I'm here. Like, this is, this is weird, right? Y'all just, that's what you're going to talk about life group now. You're going to be like, who is this guy? He's his own uncle. Like, just work through it. It's fantastic. But my point is this. Like, this is, these are the people that God chose. These are people we couldn't, we wouldn't brag about. And these are the people that God chose to come from. Not on accident, on purpose. Here's why you need to know that. 
I, I can't tell you how often we qualify our own lives from serving God because of how we have been or who we're from. And God looks at that and says, I can work with that. And if you don't believe me, look at Judah and Tamar. Or next week, come back. It doesn't get better as we go. It gets great when Jesus comes. Don't wait until December 24th to come. But my point, my point is this. This story is in here so you would know that Jesus' family is messed up. And last but not least, so you would know in this that this, these are the kind of people that God chose to come from. He chose to come from these people. And so what in the world do we learn from this? Well, first, we learn, we learn, like I said, that God is faithful even when his people are faithless. Whether it's the brothers selling Joseph, oh, God worked through that. He finds out in the end of Genesis, he says, what you meant for bad, I see that God worked for good. That's not a direct translation, but that is what he said. And God was not along telling Joseph what's going on. He, he tell, gives him a dream at the Technicolor Dreamcoat moment and then basically is somewhat silent for the next decade, decade and a half until it all makes sense as to what God is doing. That even when we can't see God's faithfulness, he is being faithful. That when it seems that we are failing, as we're following the Lord, it could be that God is indeed moving. Uh, the Apostle Paul, when he was dying and rotting in Roman imprisonment, he writes back to young Timothy, whose church was not working out as he thought it would be. That, was, that when life was not working out as he thought it would, when ministry wasn't working out, as he thought it would. And he reminds them this hymn in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. He says, this saying is trustworthy. For if we've died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he'll deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. We learn that God is faithful even when our people are faithless. Do you know why you need to know that? Not just so you continue to see God's hand at work as we go through the rest of those that are in Jesus' genealogy, but also because you have not walked through your last faithless season of life yet. You need to know, you need to know that when you have those moments or seasons where you doubt or turn or don't quite believe like you think you should, God is right there all along because he is faithful. The second thing, what do we do with this story? What do we learn from this story? Number two, we see that God has extravagant grace for your mess. Like, this, this isn't just Judah and Tamar's story. Now, granted, there's issues, and we're not saying this is a good way to live, and we're not raising them up as examples to follow. The Bible doesn't raise them up as examples to follow. The Bible is showing us that in spite of the mess that was 
Abraham's family that is now in Christ, your heritage, in spite of all that you've come from and all that you're related to and all of who you are, God can't, has grace for your mess. Well, this is the promise of the gospel. That the gospel tells us that Romans 5.20, that the law, what tells us what's right and wrong and what we should do and what we shouldn't do, the law came to increase the trespass, to show us how miserably, how desperately we failed at meeting it. But where sin increased with knowledge of the law, knowing how much we actually failed, grace abounded all the more. So grace won up sin every single time. Grace, sin is going to make you die. God, by his grace, is going to make you live. Sin is going to make you suffer. God, by his grace, is going to make you reign. Sin is going to take everything away. God, by his grace, will make you thrive in the gospel. Maybe not in this life, but in the life to come. When all things are broken, God, through the gospel, fixes all things. That where sin increased, grace abounded all the more to you. You need to know that. We need to know that in spite of all of this, God in his grace is going to work above and beyond someone's family story that is probably, if not equal, or to the level of terribleness of anybody in this room. That where, that God has extravagant grace for your mess, for your mess. Last, that Jesus came to show grace toward people like you and people like them too, whoever them would be for you. But Jesus came to show grace toward people just like you. So often in the Christmas season, we can forget that when you look at a manger scene, you are seeing God's grace in the flesh for you. Now, there are other purposes to God coming, but that exists for people like you. Not a better version of you, people like you. Not a, not, not a cleaned up version of you, people like you. Not someone who gets it together and then gives your life to God. No, no, no. People like you as you are. God has, ex- has grace in Jesus. He came to show grace toward people like you. Paul tells the Corinthians this. He says, for consider your calling. He calls them, like, remember when you were saved? He says, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. What a great pastor. Y'all were dumb when you came to Christ, right? Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world Even things that are not. He says, you guys were like literally nothing when you came to Christ. And he chose you to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus. Who became to us wisdom from God. And righteousness. And sanctification. And redemption. God in the gospel has grace in Jesus Christ for people like you where you are. Are. So what do we do with this? Very simple application this week. We show grace. We show grace. 
We show grace not just to others, but first, we show grace to ourselves. Here's the question. Where are you less gracious to yourself than God is with you? Where's the area of your life that you hold hostage, not allowing the beautiful reality that God and the gospel can forgive, redeem, and restore even that thing where you would withhold grace where God has not? Where are you not showing yourself some grace? You will fail as a human being. You will fail as a man. You will fail as a woman. You will fail as a husband. You will fail as a wife. You will fail as a mom. You will fail as a dad. You failed as a teenager. You failed as a 20-year-old. You failed as a 30-year-old. We have a God whose grace goes above and beyond all failures. What are you holding hostage that God in his grace, grace does not Show yourself some grace. Believe God's grace is bigger than your sin. Show grace. And of course, show grace to others. Where might you be less gracious to others than God is? Not giving them that unmerited, unearned favor and love. And y'all, that's, that's hard. I don't know which one's harder, showing grace to ourselves or showing grace to others. One of them is outward, but the other one we hold ourselves hostage to in the middle of the night when we can't sleep and we're thinking about all the dumb things that we did or the ways that we think or whatever. Like, man, one of those things is probably eating your lunch. Where can you show grace to others? Where are you less gracious to them than God is? And then here's the action step. What could you do differently or think differently or respond differently to show and extend grace like God does to you or like God does to, does to them in that thing? What would it look like? What would it look like to be extravagantly gracious in that relationship or with yourself? And that's what we're going to pray about in the response time. We're going to ask God to show us what it looks like to be extravagantly gracious toward others and ourselves because God in his grace is extravagantly gracious toward us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being so good to us. We thank you for the story of Tamar and Judah. Lord, I can't imagine what it would be like to have been in Tamar's shoes. Lord, I thank you that you, in spite of their faults and failures, are still faithful. God, I thank you that you know what it is to have a messed up family, that you chose to have one. And Lord, I thank you that when you brought me into your family, you chose me and brought my mess with me and knew exactly what you were getting. Lord, I pray for every person in here that in this time you would help them see 
what it looks like to be extravagantly gracious with themselves and with those around them. My God, when we talk about that, all sorts of questions come up about boundaries and hurts and failures, forgiveness. Man, all, there's it's so messy, but God, you... We know because of the Bible. We know because you deal with messes that you have grace even for our mess. So Lord, I pray that right now you would give unmistakable clarity to every person in this room who follows you as to what it looks like to be gracious with themselves and to be gracious toward others. Jesus, we love you. Help us to respond in this moment so that we would be more in love with you and more like you afterward than right now.